Hi, everybody. My name's Larry. I'm an alcoholic. Where's Katie? Oh, shit. I, uh, I want to thank Jeff for that uh, introduction. Uh, with the few minutes I have left, I... Uh, <laughs> You know, right before this thing started, Ben gathered up all the speakers and were telling us about the hosts that we were going to have. And he says, I had the worst one. So, all he does is eat and poop. So, you just, uh, But uh, as soon as I got in the car, I asked him how he was doing. And the son of a bitch didn't stop till about ten minutes ago telling me, you know what I mean? Uh, proud member of On and On, you know what I mean? Just, Jesus, you know, and uh, and then I want to thank whoever uh, I don't know if it was Jeff or, or I heard it was it could have been an Al Anon. But the people that filled up the, the the baskets that we get, full of anything you want if you're smoking dope. I mean, you know, I just it it was like a drugstore. They had all kinds of shit in there: shampoo and candy and you know, edible earwax and all kinds of stuff. You know, and uh, and the way that they tied the bags. I guess the gal must have been a little meth head because there were so many little knots, you know what I mean? You weren't going to get in that bag if it was the last thing that you did, you know? But thank you for the little gift bag and stuff like that. And uh, I've had a great time since I've been here. I want to say hi to all my buddies and Ralph and and Bob and, and Charlie and Kent and all the guys and... Mari and stuff like that, and you know, I, I'm just surrounded by by people that I love to be with here, and uh, and Tennessee has been just great since I've landed, you know. Um, uh, not too long ago, I was telling this to Jeff. I said that I, I you know, it's good to be here. I it wasn't too long ago that I had a uh, my aorta valve and my heart replaced, and. Uh, they didn't put a you know, mechanical valve or a pig valve. They got a cow valve that they put in there. So now I can poop standing up, and uh, <laughs> you know. And and uh, when on our way over here, we were passing these big pastures in Tennessee, and I I just had a desire to wander over there, you know. <laughs> I had my little face pressed up against the glass, you know. But um, I'm glad to be with you guys. And uh, it's been a great conference and stuff like that. And uh, uh, Jeff, for all that he's done and everything like that, and Ben. And uh, it's just been a treat being with you. Um, we're on uh, steps eight and nine. And now the work begins, huh? Up until this point. It's all been about us, our inventory, uh, our surrenders, uh, our defects and everything like that. And we're slowly turning around. 
We're slowly turning around. And now the work begins. If I could read something with you real quick. Spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. Unless one's family expresses desire to live upon spiritual principles, we think we ought not to urge them. We should not talk incessantly to them about spiritual matters. They will change in time. Our behavior will convince them more than our words. We must remember that 10 or 20 years of drunkenness would make a skeptic out of anyone. There may be some wrongs we can never fully right. We don't worry about them if we can honestly say to ourselves that we'd write them if we could. Some people cannot be seen. We send them an honest letter. And there may be a valid reason for postponement in some cases. But we don't delay if it can be avoided. We should be sensible, tactful, and considerate and humble without being servile or scrapping. As God's people, we stand on our feet. We don't crawl before anyone. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we'll be amazed before we're halfway through. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past or wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and no peace. What these amends are about to do has very little to do with my peace and a lot to do with mom and dad's and a lot to do with those little children and a lot to do with those countless people that we ran over, hook, line, and sinker. And I was so glad to start feeling myself wanting to do something 100% for the first time in my life. That it wasn't on day one of my sobriety, but it eventually came something that I wanted to shoot for, you know. And that's what makes these amends so important to a guy like me. Because in the step one in our 12 and 12, that last paragraph in step one, it says we stood ready to do anything to lift this merciless obsession. Anything. I can't think of a better word to describe our malady than merciless. Yes, sir. Oh, I thought somebody was agreeing with me, you know. In Tennessee, you never know what they're going to throw at you here, you know. Yeah, you know. So, uh, and, uh, and so this phase of my development was a big deal, you know. Now, uh, I know we got some new people. And if you're new, I want to welcome you. I want to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, I hope you go to as many meetings as you can. But the sad part is we can't talk you into this thing. But eventually, maybe you'll remember something on maybe your last time back that may be able to push you through, you know. 
And I know there's something about you if you're new. I know there's something about you that you've never quite been able to put your finger on. I know there's something about you that you really can't stand and that you've been trying to hide from people your entire life. And if you're anything like me, I spent a lifetime trying to forget the past. I wish I could just block it out. And yet in my depths of my alcoholism, how I would do things that I wrote about on that fourth and fifth step that disgusted me, that tortured me, but when it came to getting a drink, I would repeat them. And I know you feel different if you're new. And I know there may be one incident and maybe a couple of them that kind of just sets you back a little from talking to anybody. And I'm here to share with you if you knew that it's been my experience. And that's all I have up here. I'm no authority. I'm no counselor or probation officer or anybody. I'm a loser. I'm a hostile loser. I'm a retired plumber. That's what makes me hostile. (laughs) And I hope that you can find somebody that you can identify with and just listen to them and, and, and start following this person around and start coughing up some of these chunks about yourself. And I guarantee you one thing if you're new. In fact, I can promise you this. That whatever that little chunk is, you will not shock the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> if it hasn't been done by the people in the first two rows here, it just hasn't been thought of yet, you know what I mean? You will not shock the people in AA. If you want to shock them, help set up a meeting. (laughs) Good night, everybody. I tell you, I come from good people. And like I stated, I was a loser and a hostile loser. And when you're growing up a loser, people are always bringing strangers to your side to compare you to and stuff like, why can't you be like him and stuff like that? And uh, are you okay? Oh, did you lose a dog? Oh, oh. Let the games begin. All right. I'm just getting to your part now. I, um, and I, you know, uh, and I come from good people. I come from great people, you know. And uh, I was born in Detroit, and I come out to California when I was about seven years old and brought up in a, a little foster home and then an orphanage for a while. Mom had some, mom and dad had some troubles, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, they finally got together and gave it countless vain attempt and moved to California, you know, and they wanted that good life that they've been reading about all this time. And, man, my mom was a sweet lady. My mom was a great lady. My dad was a great man. My mom was a little five-foot little Scandinavian lady, and she loved diet pills, so she was always eating that speed and running around the house, you know. I told you I'd get to your part, you know. And uh, <laughs> and um, 
Oh, she loved eating those diet pills, man. And she'd be running around that house making Afghans all day, you know, and <laughs> everything in the house had fresh Afghans all the time. The chairs had Afghans. Couches had Afghans. My dad's golf clubs had little poodle heads she just knit, you know. You know, if we had any, you know, if we had any animals, they had a fresh vest on, you know, and uh, everything was tight and pink just like her, you know. And uh, no matter what time you got up, she was up doing something, you know. Mowing the lawn, raking the neighbor's yard, you know. Uh, you know, just a busy lady out in the garage sorting out nuts and bolts all night, you know. And uh, no matter what time you got up, she was up doing something, you know. And, uh, and uh, you know, she had a little room where she did all that knitting. And it sounded like the garment district when you walked in there. Just, just going to town, man, you know. And... Uh, and as some of you guys know, like the ones over here, it looks like, that when you eat a lot of speed, you have a lot of hobbies. Am I right? <laughs> There's not a real tooth in that head back there, you know? <laughs> you betcha, man. I ain't got any real ones either, pal, you know? And you like that, you know, you eat that stuff, you have a lot of hobbies, right? You know? You're painting, you're picking your face for sure, you know? Uh, Got to pick that face, you know. Uh, you're, yeah, you're dyeing your hair, you're mowing your lawn, you're, you know, every, you know. And uh, one of her favorite hobbies was to eat that speed and make these huge jigsaw puzzles, right? Not the one thousand piecers or the five thousand piecers, but the one million piecers, right, of the Mojave Desert. <laughs> and I'll keep her busy, right? And she'd get all excited, you know. Oh, you know, this is going to be a beige night tonight, honey, you know, and run off to the drugstore and get that peroxide that smelled like sewer gas, you know. And she smoked these Raleigh cigarettes, man. And on the, on the back of each pack of cigarettes was a coupon. Because if you save enough coupons, you could buy stuff from their catalog. And, well, she would always buy more yarn, that old gal, you know, to keep that thing going, you know. And she'd get all excited, man, come home, open up that card table, put on that one and only moo she had for 50 years, you know. And, Keep her away from the window there, you know, and uh, and then she start putting together this puzzle. And by golly, if she got a piece that didn't fit, well, she had a big pair of toenail clippers, and she'd snip that son of a bitch down, and wedge it right in there, man. Oh yeah, there's you're not gonna hold up Betty, you know what I mean? Oh, I love my mom to death, man. Loved her to death, you know. And uh, what was to happen to me? By the time I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, which was May 2nd, 1982, I'm a little over 40 years sober. <laughs> and, uh, and um, you know, what I would do with that little, and my mom was a beautiful lady. She looked like that little actress, uh, Kim Novak. Everybody loved her, and Betty had a lot of friends, and Betty was well-liked, and everybody would come over to the house. And by the time I was 30 years old, I'd whittled that little precious little lady down at 95 pounds. Wasn't the speed. And she'd be parked in front of that kitchen window all day and all night, smoking those Raleigh's, looking out that window, wondering if the cop car that went by had me in the back. Wonder if that newspaper that slid under the door had the obituary finally. Wonder if that figure walking down the street at night, is that my son coming home? You see, my drinking ain't bothering anybody. 
coming home one night. Don't you worry about it, Mom. She hadn't seen me for over a year, and I snuck into her house, and I, and I surprised her, and she's on the couch watching Johnny Carson, and she sees me in my filth, and she lays me down on that couch, and she starts rocking me. And the tears start coming and hit me right here. She's rocking me and praying to this Michigan God, oh, please help my baby boy. And I hear her making these prayers, and I get up, Mom, it ain't, it ain't that bad. It ain't that bad, Mom. Everything's going to be all right. See, I, I got a new job coming in a week. Everything's, I'm going to get myself a little room, and, and I'm going to do like Dad does and get it together. Don't you worry about a thing, Mom. And she wanders off to the room. And after about a half hour of my drunken stupor, I remember that my father had some whiskey underneath the disposal in the sink. And I go over there and I start to look at it, and I can't find it. And I start panicking. And like the days of wine and roses, I start busting up those cupboards and everything like that, looking for that half pint. She comes walking down that hall, honey, what's wrong? What's honey, what's wrong? And I turned on that lady. I said, don't you, honey, what's wrong with me? And I start banging around that little lady till I get some blood out of her nose. Demanding that she come up with that bottle. Just for me to spin around and pass out and wake up the next morning and look in the trash. To see that I drank it and it was already in the can. You see, my drinking ain't bothering anybody. I never want to forget what it was like to be a 17, 18 years old. I've been put away for a small period of time, and that big old black and white bus drops us off on a Monday in front of the South Bay Courthouse in Torrance. And I'm supposed to go in there and report and do all that, and the bus opens up. And I go the other way. I go into Gardena, into a place called Lorana, and I go over there where my buddies are. It's Monday, and they don't come out until Thursday. And I don't show up at the courthouse or the probation department or anything. No, 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 no. I show up at my mom's place of business. My mom's cleaning people's houses, and she works at a dry cleaner's, and I'm at the dry cleaner's. Seven, eight o'clock in the morning, and I'm about from here to those back doors. And that rain's hitting me. And I got my filth and my disgust and what Wino Joe used to call the habiliments of despair. And I'm standing in that rain. And I'm hiding behind a parked car waiting for that last customer to come out of that store so I'd make the move on my mom. And I start walking through that rain as if it was yesterday, pal. And I open up that glass door of that dry cleaners and that brass bell hits that glass door. And my mom turns around and makes that oh so familiar sound. (gasps) Oh my God, where have you been? She digs into her wallet and peels out $1, $2, $3. And I run right by her and I grab that money and I run off to Wilmington and Long Beach where I'm going to die. Now the thing that brings it home to me today with this new man and new women in Alcoholics Anonymous. How come if you were to put the secretary of this meeting that same distance as me and my mom in that parking lot, how come when my life depends on it, 
I can't walk that same distance and ask this young man for a job in a meeting that's going to save my life. But I can walk that distance and use my mom and folks like her time and time and time again. And I'm here to share with you, if you're new, that if my alcoholism doesn't kill me, my selfishness and my self-centeredness will make no mistake about that. Which is why it's necessary for a man with over 40 years to have a sponsor, a home group, a routine of meetings and make these amends. Because for one reason... And that's for one reason and one reason only. I will never get so sober that I can't get drunk again. But I can get so drunk that I can't make it. And I don't ever want to forget what I used to be like. Wandering in and out of these meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous year after year. With that God-awful pride and ego sitting in this meeting and several like it. Sitting in that chair waiting for you to do something for me. I've had my hand out my entire life. And what I was waiting to be done to me, God was waiting to do through me. There's a miracle here. Things happen here. Things happen here to the people who begin to serve that thing they want so much from. Oh, what are you talking about? When you begin to serve this thing that you want so much from, your life begins to shift a little. And I pray that that day happens to you if you're new. I pray that you are around people who are done, because I become what I'm around. I don't know about you. I haven't been here for over 30 hours, and I got an accent. (laughs) You know what I mean? Hell yeah. (laughs) Put me into frog jump, you know. Yeah, yeah. Now, my dad was a happy drunk. My dad was a happy, sing the blues, Nat King Cole, Bobby Darren drunk. The old man used to get drunk and sneak into his own home. It was an amazing thing, man. He was a window climbing alky, which I believe is a lost art in Alcoholics Anonymous. That a boy standing on that gas meter, pounding on that window all night, getting ready to make that magic dive over that toilet or the sink, you know. And he was a hard-working man. He was a World War II vet, born in Detroit, grew up in the ghetto of Detroit. Hard-working refinery man, you know. You never know when he was coming home. He snuck in that window one night. That old boot came down on my chest. You know, Jesus, I grabbed that boot and I said, Pop, I said, why don't you have Mom make you a set of keys, for God's sakes, you know? (laughs) Shit, she's up anyway. I hear the Hoover going now, you know what I mean? (laughs) She could probably grind it out with her little teeth, you know? (laughs) Hard-working guy, man. Hard-working guy. His drinking didn't scare me. I knew he found something. He was a miserable man when he was sober. Restless, irritable, discontent, hostile. You know? I know what it's like to get beat up. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to sit in that house wondering when he's going to come in and get you again. I know that. 
I know what it's like to feel so invisible, full of guilt because you can't stop them from hitting her. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to love some mom and dad, but you don't trust them because they're telling you to do stuff and and they're not doing it, which makes Alcoholics Anonymous the perfect place for a guy like me where we, we lead by example. Not only does my sponsor and my buddies give me suggestions on what to do, I can see them doing it in their own home. And I tell you, man, to the untrained eye, that speaks volumes. That speaks volumes. And I felt so guilty about feeling like that to my dad, that I couldn't stand being in that house, and I started running away from home. My mother and father aren't the reason why I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous or why I drank. Amazing thing came out of my inventory. My life is my fault. And then they say, we take the word blame out of our vocabulary. What? There ain't nothing for me to talk about. You know what I mean? (laughs) That's a whole different sound there. I started running away from home around 10 years old, man. Started running away from home. Wanted nothing to do with that. Tree forts and neighbors' garages and stuff like that. You know? Eleven years old, there's four of us in a garage, and we start passing around a bottle of Four Rose whiskey. Nobody had to dare me. Nobody had to do nothing, man. Passed around that bottle of Four Rose whiskey. I took a shot of that stuff. and Man, I never threw up so much in all my life. <laughs> threw up stuff I was eating when I was six months old. It was coming up, you know. <laughs> Clean me out, you know, and... But after a while, man, I took another couple of snorts, and I never laughed so hard in all my life, man. Oh, my God, man. I, you know, and, and then that, Jesus, at 11 year old, years old, the magic of all magic happened with me that night. I, I kissed my first Latin woman, who was my aunt. I went, <laughs> she was 46 years old, just my type, you know. And I went after her, you know, made my uncle a little edgy having me around, you know. I counted it, you know. <laughs> Walking home, you know, that night, fell in those oleander bushes, laughing and stuff like that, snuck into the house. Dad was still at work, you know, and I went into that room, and I fell on the bed, and it started turning around like a flying saucer, you know, and I woke up the next morning, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it, man. He sawed my arms off when he caught me smoking. He's going to let me have it now. But he wasn't in there, and I snuck into the den. I was going to get a shot of his Thunderbird wine. My dad made a bar. My dad made a beautiful bar. It didn't, you know, it, it, it wasn't the kind where you could line up 20 guys, you know. It was an alky bar. It fit one guy. It was like a, po- <laughs> it was like a podium, man, you know. It was his bar, god dang it, you know. And had a big lock on it about the size of the big book, you know. Well, anyway, I was off and running. Now, I didn't, you know, you know. 11 years old, I didn't go out there and hit Skid Row and lose my paper out and come to the Alano Club, you know what I mean? But I become preoccupied with doing it again. I had to do it again. And my whole life began to shift. All that stuff that I was getting whooped on on trying to be a good kid, good in sport, da-da-da, be a good... It made a shift. 
that I found a shortcut that seemed to feel good. Now, I've always known that I was a nobody. I know that. You hear it enough, you begin to believe it, and you become it. And I tell you what, that night, outside of laughing and joking, it turned that little nobody into somebody. And it dawned on me that I would rather be a part-time somebody than an all-time nobody, and I know just what did it. A little shot of four-rose whiskey. And like I said, I was now, like I said, I didn't head out the skid row, but year after year after year, I kept dipping into it somehow. And by the time I'm a freshman in high school, everybody's going to their lockers to get their books and everything. And I'm going to my lockers to get a shot of some Thunderbird wine, and maybe some barbiturates and stuff like that. And I started hanging around these guys. And, you know, we didn't have these Dodge trucks like you guys have out here. Jeff, with these nine-foot tires where you can drive over each other's houses every day, you know. But I did have a 62 Chevy Impala dropped right down to the ground, you know. Had my hair slicked back and my white T-shirts with my black khaki pants up to here and driving around, listening to the Four Tops and the Temptations and the OJs and Marvin Gaye. And God, I loved it, man. I was in that plumbing truck not too long ago and the Four Tops came on and Shit, I just started sinking in my damn truck, you know. I, I loved it, you know. Started dating this little girl named Loopy. Her sisters told me that men who are well endowed had big feet. I went out and bought me a pair of 15-inch shoes, you know. And had my big hair and my big feet. and Jesus, I loved it. Ben tripped over my foot tonight, and I felt proud, you know. You want me to move that, son, you know. Y'all don't mind a big toe, do you? You know, I loved it, man. Anyway, all I can tell you is about around 1973, they they sent me back to California, and they uh, I'd been arrested for uh, writing out-of-state forgeries, and they sent me to California and went to this uh, place to be observed. They had me on a gurney in a hospital. They sent me to this place, mental place, to be observed for 30 or 60 days. A year later, they let me out, totally observed, and put me on some medication. And around 1975, I ran out of that medication, and I'm wandering around the streets of Long Beach and Los Angeles. And in 1975, they found me in Overo Street in Los Angeles, across the street at a Chevron gas station. I'm on a pile of tires. I'm not over there vaping. And at this time in my life, there is not an invisible line in my life of what I do or don't do to get a shot of alcohol. There is no invisible line. And I'm over there arresting. And they arrest me, and they arrest me for out-of-state forgeries and for uh, violation of probation under the influence, sent me to three and a half years in a penitentiary. And after about five months, they send me to court. They put a 50 of us in a black and white bus, sent us to the South Bay Courthouse in a holding tank about the size of this room. One by one, all these guys are getting called out, and they're not coming back. At 4 o'clock in the afternoon in 1975, I'm the only one left. I'm on a concrete floor with a Vons bag and no hope, wondering where are you going to send me now? And at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, a Scottish man with a patch stood outside a jail door. Clean and sharp, just like you guys are now. The sheriff opens up that door, and that man says, Hi, lad. 
He says, are you Larry Thomas? And I said, yes, sir, I am. Oh, that's great. That's great. He says, come with me, son. We're going to AA. I said, my God, what's AA? You know, I've heard of OR and PO, but what's AA, you know? And it's a whole different group of initials here, you know? And, and, and is he real? You know, I've been hallucinating so much, you know? Where's your parrot, you know? I, you know? And that man takes me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm ready for a long ride up north and maybe some lunch, right? He takes me to a 15-minute car ride to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Rolls up to this dingy, stinking, rotten, filthy, disgusting Torrance Lamita Alano Club, you know. I'd never heard of a word like that, Alano, you know. And I'm thinking, what is it? Is it like an elk or a moose, you know? Watch for crossing Alanos, you know, or something. And he pulled up, and there's all the Alanos walking around, man. Everybody had a nickname and a tattoo. He starts introducing me to all these goofy people, Indian Genie and Captain Bob and Tennessee Bill and Singing Sam and Serenity Sam and Bicycle Ray and Santa Claus Ray and Dancing Pete and Whistling Butt. And I said, oh, my God. I just, I just left a bunch of people like that. Little Moose comes running after me. Hi, honey, my name is Moose, and I'm expecting a miracle. I said, I bet you are, lady. I said, I'm not it, you know. Then this big transvestite starts circling me like a helicopter in Tallahassee, you know. And uh, He comes up to me in his moo-moo and he says, hi. He says, I can't wait to take you to a candlelight meeting. I said, I don't think so, big guy, you know. Not till I get a year, you know. <laughs> I said, my God, that guy's got big feet, you know. <laughs> Son of a bitch like that. And from 1975 to 1982, I came in and out of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I hadn't touched AA. I did what I'd done my entire life, whether it be in church or clinics or medical. You know, I sat in a room waiting for people to do something for me. I would come here, I'd get physically sober and stay mentally ill. And on May 2nd, 1982, I'm on the streets of Wilmington. I got kicked out of the Beacon Light Mission. I'm in an alley. I got a little blanket wrapped around me. It's 5 o'clock in the morning. And the thought comes to me, I want to call that guy in AA. I panhandled some money, and I called that little Alano club, and who do I get? I get Don, this Montana cowboy who'd been coming and getting me for several times. I said, Don, this is Larry. I'm ready to come back to Alcoholics Anonymous. Will you come and get me? And he told me the most profound thing I've ever heard in my life. He said, no. <laughs> he says, you know where we are. You know what we got. Why don't you get your rusty rear down here yourself? I'm tired of chasing after you. And he hung up. <laughs> my God, whatever happened to that AA love, you know? I, <laughs> I just heard it. And for the first time in my life, it was up to me to come to you. And it dawned on me that morning. And I came to believe that morning, not in God or, or the book or, or, or AA. I came to believe in the hopelessness of my life with me running it any longer. That at 30 years old, I'd given it my best shot. And the best that I could do is to be wound up in an alley with all I have on my back, wondering what to do with my life. And I did the hardest thing I've ever had to do. I surrendered.
I says, I'm going to walk down. I'm going I'm to walk that 10 miles to that club and talk to that guy because I had a resentment about him hanging up on me. <laughs> I didn't do the four columns yet, but I, I walked that 10 miles with my poopy pants and no hope. And I got down to that club, and I had the DTs, and they were walking me and giving me honey and orange juice and giving me oatmeal and shaking and holding me. And I asked that man something I never asked a man in my life. I said, Don, I don't know what to do with my life. Would you be my sponsor? And he lit up like a chandelier for about five seconds. And then he lit into me for 20 minutes, man, you know. <laughs> and I remember that inventory with that man. And I remember making those amends and how that list Right here. Do we lay the matter before our sponsor or spiritual advisor, earnestly asking God's help and guidance, meanwhile resolving to do the right thing when it becomes clear, cost what it may, of course. There is no pat answer which can fit all such dilemmas, but all of them do require a complete willingness to make amends as fast and as far as may be possible in set conditions. Above all, we should try to be absolutely sure that we are not delaying because we're afraid. For the readiness to take full consequences of our past acts and to take responsibility for the well-being of others at the same time is the very spirit of step nine. And I mentioned my mother and father at the gate of this thing because of one thing. It was time that I took them off the hook. You see, in those four columns that Ralph talked about so eloquently today, I had to put another thing on there. As a result of this resentment, how did you get even with that person? What did you do to make it right? You see, when you have alcohol, you don't need the power of God. But if you don't have alcohol and you don't have God, there's only one other thing that will give you power, and that's hanging on to your defects of character. There is nothing like the sense of power when you can rightly get even with somebody. There is nothing like the sense of power of what a little bit of hostility will do to people to move them in and out of your life. There is nothing like a little bit of lust and stuff like that to let people know all the power you get out of those defects of character. I believe I hang on to them because I'm still getting something out of them. But the very thing in Alcoholics Anonymous grinds into this head that you can't be wrong with people and right with God. And even though you think nobody sees you because you're doing these things off on some other city or something like that, you cannot sin in private for lack of a better word, because everybody's affected by your attitude when you're done. A little bit restless, irritable, discontent, a little touchy, are you? <laughs> it all comes out. And when I started with this list, and there was nothing, not one amends that was done without my sponsors knowing exactly what I was going to be doing. I didn't run off and make amends to my mom and dad. No, no, no. 
They had heard that song and danced so many times before. <gasps> I'm not drinking. Everything's going to be wonderful, right? Two weeks later, there you are again. No, no, no. My sponsor says you give these people a break. If you want to talk to your mother and father, ask them how they're doing. How are they doing? Quit talking about AA, your dad. There's nothing worse than talking AA to people who aren't in AA, you know. <laughs> Got another chip. What? Oh, that's great. You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> but when I did, when I did get the okay, you better believe it, man. I grabbed that little mom of mine. You betcha. And I sat there and I didn't say I was sorry. No, 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 we're not using that word no more. No, that's... Go ahead and burn that. I want to make amends. I want to talk about my behavior and how I regret it. Now, the very spirit of these amends that I have received from you guys was when I'm making amends to one person for a certain behavior, I'm not only making amends to them for that behavior and the promise not to do them with that behavior again. The spirit of the amends is I won't repeat it to anyone else. And when I made amends to my mom and told her about this thing called what I was doing and stuff like that, she said, give me a hug. She, she still hugged me like this, and rightfully so. But I'd been happily married for a couple years when I did that. And I had to do the one thing to my little precious wife, Rosie, that I never thought I would do. I started cheating on her. I started dating my mom. <laughs> you betcha. You betcha, man. Every Tuesday, I grab that little lady and take her down for Chinese food and stuff like that. And she didn't want no money or nothing like that, so I would hide money in her house and stuff like that, in her hamper and stuff like that. And I peppered her with love. I couldn't fuss enough over her. There was nothing like taking care of my mom in her, her later years, man. I remember one day she, I got the call and they were wheeling her in and that they were going to do a surgery on her little ulcer and IBS and IRS and all kinds of stuff, you know. And she was worried sick, you know, and she called me and I told my sponsor, he says, for God's sakes, go see her. Go see her, Larry. Jesus. Tell her it's going to be all right. So I walked over there and, Mom, going to be all right, you know. See you later, you know. And I started talking to her. And on the way up there, I remember talking to my wife. And she says, why don't you get her some hand cream and, uh, you know, put some on her little arms and stuff like that. Women love to be massaged. So I stopped at the hospital gift shop, and I got this tub of lavender cream, brought that up there, you know. And, and I started talking to my mom. And she had this surgery, and uh, it went south. It went bad on her, and, uh, you know, there was no, you know, it's going to be all right. She was laying in there, and I walked up there, and the nurse says, is Betty your mom? And I said, yeah. She goes, well, she wants to talk to you. 
So I walked in there, and she gets up, and she goes like that, you know, and I lean over to my mom, and I said, what is it? She goes, tonsils my ass, you know, and she got ripped open over there, and I started, I seen her little feet, and they were all dry and stuff like that, and I'm going, hmm. I said, Mom, I said, the, would you like your feet massaged? Oh, yeah. Man, her little feet were just, you know. I, I says, really? She goes, oh, yeah. So I cracked open that tub of lavender cream and started massaging those dogs, man. And, oh, man, she started, oh, oh scared the heck out of me, man, you know. Back down, Mom, you know. Oh, I loved it. Well, eventually she had to get into a little home, and she moved into this home where all these little ladies, there's five floors, and all the ladies uh, look alike, you know, and, uh, and they all have balconies, and they all have real roses and daisies on their balconies and stuff like that, and one day I go over there and visiting my mom, and I, I get her her groceries and give her a big kiss, and I noticed her balcony that there, she's got plastic flowers, Everybody else has got real, and I'm going, my God, what a tightwad, Larry. Why don't you get mom some real flowers? Brilliant idea. I said, mom, I said, I'm going to get you some flowers. She says, what? I says, your balcony. You got plastic flowers. I'm going to buy you some real roses, plant them, and take care of them. No, I don't want any real flowers. No, you don't get it, mom, I said. I'm going to pay for it. I'll take care of them. I'll weed them. I'll water them. I'll, you know, I'll come over. I'll tend to them. And you'll have real flowers, just like the other ladies. Yeah, I, I don't want them. I said, look, you don't understand. And you, I'll get them. She said, Larry, Jesus, Larry, for God's sakes, I don't want any real flowers. She says, I love to wake up in the morning and sit in my chair and watch the hummingbirds suffer. You got it, Mom. You know what I mean? One of, the, one of the finest days of my life. I eventually had to move Mom. She's starting to get forgetful and stuff like that. And I had to move her into a, an assisted living. And she had 24-hour attention. And we painted the pictures of everybody with their names and stuff like that. And, and I would bring her her groceries and her diapers and stuff like that. And take the remote control out of the refrigerator and, you know, stuff like that. And, and just tend her and love her and stuff like that. And every time I went over there, she had a friend who would be standing in a walker right by her bedside. And a tall little lady, she, uh, she looked like Dionne Warwick, you know, and that was her friend, Catherine. And I would walk over there and I came in there one day and got mom all of her stuff and hugged her up and kissed her and put away her groceries. And Catherine's looking at me. Catherine, I guess, was close to 90. And Catherine says, Larry, Larry. I says, yes, Catherine, what is it? She says, uh, I need to ask you something. I'm ready. I said, what? She says, I'm ready for you. Really? Yep, she says, I'm ready for you. I says, wow. You know, she is kind of good looking, you know. And move that walker aside, you know. I mean, I'm thinking, of, you know. I says, uh, 
Catherine, I says, that's great. I says, what are you ready for? Oh, she says, honey, I'm ready for you to do to me like you do to your mom. So I started doing that when I went over there. Well, before you know it, I got about six of these gals. (laughs) I felt like the assisted living pimp, you know what I mean? (laughs) All right, you go down to that corner. I'll be back in two hours, you know? (laughs) Nothing but 20s, you know? And Oh, yeah, yeah. And I loved it. I loved to death, man. And I, I was at my mom's side when she passed. And I tell you, we were on good terms. And I wasn't doing it to be a, a good AA. Or, I took my rightful place. I was her son. Now, my dad was a different story. My dad took some tendon, too. Okay. And uh, I didn't know how to approach him. I talked to my sponsor, and he says, you just sit down and make an afternoon with him. And so I invited him on a Thursday uh, to a place called Norm's where we would have chili. And me and my dad would have this chili, and I made some amends to my pop. You see, I was mad at him because uh, he promised me a baby brother at five. And he'd come into my bedroom and said the baby brother died. And I remember running and hitting him and yelling at him, you promised me. And that would close the door on me believing in God or anything. What type of God would create a baby and kill it was my thought. My dad, after my amends, said, son, he said, "Uh, I need to tell you about that day. He says, I've seen a lot of things and I've been a lot of places. And I've seen a lot of tragedies and blood. World War II, my ship sinking, he says, in refinery fire. He says, I want to tell you about the hardest day of my life. He says, it was the day that I had to leave my bedroom and walk down to the hall and tell you that your little dream had become a nightmare. He says, I didn't want to tell you that. He said, but I thought you deserved the truth. And I told my dad, you deserve the truth. And that is, I love you, and I want to, I want to have chili with you every Thursday. And every Thursday, me and Pop would have chili. And I fell in love with him. I loved him a lot. And he got that liver cancer, and I would be taking care of him, and me and Rosie would take care of him and stuff like that. And finally on the day, I was over there making out his rent. I went to go into his bedroom to see how he was doing, and Daddy had passed. Pop had passed. His eyes were open, and I went over there and... I closed his eyes and I kissed him on the cheek. Where would I get that from? Where would I get that from? I got it from you. I got it from you. I got it from Alcoholics Anonymous. At the end of every meeting, we're holding hands. I got it in Alcoholics Anonymous at my home group when it's time for a guy to take a cake. I give him a hug and we kiss. And when my sponsor gives me a cake, he gives me a hug and gives me a kiss, says, I love you, son. 
Yeah, I got that from you. And I gave my dad a kiss. And that night, it was my 12 and 12 book study. And my sponsor calls me. He said, what are you doing, jackass? <laughs> I says, uh, Pop just passed, and I'm, uh, I'm taking care of stuff and the funeral. He says, I know, son, I know. He says, look at, uh, why don't you come down here and pick me up, and let's go to our meeting. And before we do, why don't we go have a bowl of chili, son? Me and that guy have been <clears throat> having a bowl of chili for over 39 years now. Johnny told me, he says, uh, I don't have any sons. And at my age, I don't think I'm going <laughs> to. But you never know in old AA town, you know. And uh, <laughs> He says, but if I did have one, you'd be it, son. He says, I just want you to know. that you can't do enough to make me love you anymore. And you can't do anything to make me hate you. I just love you. But he says, tell me, promise me this, son. That when you go see those folks in Tennessee, make sure you tell them what you used to be like and what happened and what you're like today. And how you did that. And what's come about. Let them know that. Tell them about how a non-believer became a believer. And he never had to leave the room. And it sounded something like this. That tonight, all weekend long, we've been sitting in this room and looked at row after row after row after row of people who should be dead, locked up, or insane. And look at us tonight. Look at us today. I'm a stickler for evidence. I am a stickler for evidence. And nowhere has it been more evident than it has been this weekend. And by golly, I think I'm going to come back and play in this evidence again. Thank you so much. (laughs) 